Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Bible Readers Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Hartley, high school theology teacher and Catholic convert. In this episode of the Bible Readers Podcast, I got to sit down with Dr. Matthew Sakonikis, Associate Professor of Theology at Christendom College. Dr. Sakonikis is an expert on the book of Genesis, Thomistic moral philosophy, and the writings of Doctor of the Church, St. Lawrence Brindisi. He holds degrees from Christendom College, the Pontifical John Paul II Institute, and the Pontifical University of the Lateran. He also runs Catholic460.com, a website dedicated to evangelization and to helping Catholics understand how the earliest Christians read the Bible. That's really cool. You should check it out. It's Catholic460.com. In this episode, we discuss how to read the book of Genesis in light of the later books of the Pentateuch, namely Exodus, and how that can help us unlock the meaning of the book of Genesis. If you haven't listened to this week's episode on Genesis 4 through 5 yet, go back and do so. It's going to help you understand this conversation a little bit more. With that said, let's jump into it and explore the wonderful story of God's salvation with Dr. Matthew Zakanikis. Well, thank you for joining me. It's good to meet you. I really appreciate you being open to to be to coming on the podcast and, and talking yeah. about the Bible. So I'm out here. I don't know. Are you familiar with Christendom College? A, a little bit. So I, okay. uh, uh, not a ton. So if you want to, I, I have some students who have siblings who have gotten there. Yeah. Well, you got to come up this way and come visit. Um, yeah. I'll show you around. We are on the Shenandoah River. So that, that, uh, that song "Country Roads" by John Denver is actually about this region because we're on the we're right near West Virginia. Wow! But really, that whole Shenandoah part is about where we are. And there's, I've I've been around the country and the world, and I don't think there's a more beautiful place than right here in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. So, especially in the spring, when all the blossoms and different colors are out, and you got the Appalachian Mountains, of course, that run through North Carolina. It's amazing. Yeah, it's just it's beautiful. And, is, and then come fall when the leaves change, it's it's like being in a screensaver. Well, that's Skyline Drive is right here in Front Royal. So Skyline Drive and Caverns. Um, so yeah, we're a four-year liberal arts college, but we have a three-year theology core. Okay. So everyone takes three years of theology, three years of philosophy, a uh, couple years of history, English lit, a uh, year of political science, languages. So we do a lot of theology here. And in our core, our second year of core is Old Testament and New Testament. Yeah. And so I do a lot of teaching with that. Okay. And how long have you been in Christendom now? I've been here at Christendom for just over five years now. And I was teaching a permanent diaconate. When I came down here, I was running some programs and teaching for various programs. But I taught for Benedictine College for about uh, six years um, okay. before that. So um this has been a real joy being here yeah yeah well that would be awesome to come visit i like as a high school teacher that's one of the added benefits of doing things like this is i can get make connections with catholic universities and then as our students are are going to to look at look at colleges and uh maybe maybe take some some trips to to go see some that I have connections that I can, I can say, Hey, go talk to Dr. Sakonikis. So the graduate, so, so actually my undergraduate was, I transferred to Christendom college. So I actually okay. did, I finished up at Christendom. And then about 10 years later, I went to uh, the John Paul II Institute okay. um, in 
Australia, did my master's and the Roden program came out and helped me finish my STL. And then they invited me out to Rome. So I finished my uh, doctorate in Rome wow. at the John Paul II Institute in Rome. So that's really cool. Yeah. And what was, what was your, your doctorate focused or dissertation? It was, it was in Christian anthropology. So the main focus was on how the, how the natural was always ordered through God's free plan to realization in Christ. So the focus was on the Christocentrism of the virtues. And so we did a lot of looks from uh, and developments around the 13th century and all the influences with St. Catherine of Siena, the Dominican, Franciscan, Cistercian, and tried to look at that because she had something that I usually teach from, and that is repeatedly in her writing, she speaks of what we call the Athanasian Kerygma. Hmm. And that is, if you look in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 460, mm -hmm. it says, um, it's quote St. Peter, and he says in the second letter that, we, through the promises of Christ, we become partakers of the divine nature. Hmm. And then St. Irenaeus says that the Son of God became the Son of Man, so that sons of men, having communion with the, with the Son of God, may be made, may be made sons of God. Hmm. And then, then it quotes St. Athanasius, and this blows most people's minds. Hmm. And St. Athanasius says, the Son of God became man so that man might become God. Yeah. The and uh, so the focus is on what does that mean? So, and that's where through the grace of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he enables us to develop the kinds of life-saving virtues that we don't have the natural power to develop on our own. We can't save ourselves. Hmm. And so it's a look at how the human person participates in divinity huh. by God's love, God loving us first and enabling us to become more than we are now and to be realized in Jesus Christ. So that's, that's my main focus of, of studies. Wow. That's really cool. And is, is do you have any current projects you're working on? Uh, I am. <laughs> I am. Um, so what has me a little bit excited about when you said, Hey, we're going to talk about this. I was like, that's so great. I can't wait to talk about Genesis. And okay, sweet. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I have a, an article coming out with uh, Communio, okay. which is the international journal that uh, Carl Wojtyla, Joseph Ratzinger, Andre Delibach, Hans von Balthasar, they started this journal called Communio. Yeah, that, that was the, the, the resource one. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And so that journal, I'd leave it open for the Wi-Fi a little bit so we can crack. My wife's helping me. <laughs> um, so... Uh, so I have an article describing how to look at Genesis through the through a historical approach. In other words, I'm trying to follow verbum domini. Okay. And I'm trying to do a canonical exegesis and say let's let's strengthen our literal sense of Genesis. What is the what is the literal meaning in the minds of the author? How do I identify the author and the literal meaning? And then let's follow verbum domini. Now verbum domini is the post-apostolic synodal, post-synodal post apostolic exhortation on a, I think, 50th anniversary of the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation. 
So when Vatican II gave us the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, number 12 of Dave Verbum says you need to both read scripture, you need to keep two methodological levels together. You can't only focus on the historical critical studies. Right. Yep. And so the problem was too many Catholic theologians buy this idea of we want to prove how scientific we are, we're going to ignore everything we know about theology and revelation, and we're just going to study it apart from God, right. which was a really bad idea. Right. And so they only used one methodological level yeah. and didn't bring together the second most important level, which is the theological exegesis. Right. Because all of those authors wrote with theological faith. Mm -hmm. So Verbum Domini revisited that because, you know, too many people with how the church has always studied scripture. And so okay. they re-emphasized the importance of theological exegesis. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting you talk about the, the change in biblical scholarship uh, now. I, I think that uh, growing up as a Protestant, you know, there, there, are lot, there isn't one way that Protestants read the scriptures, but the spiritual and theological senses of scriptures are, are not nearly as emphasized in the, the, the historical grammatical uh, interpret, interpretive process is, is the one that I was taught. I was, I was, if, it's, if you don't find it explicitly in the text, it's not there. And I, I think yeah. that the historical critical method of biblical interpretation and the, uh, like this deep exploration to what is the literal sense of scripture is really important, but once we divorce that from the theological and spiritual senses of scripture, you're you're affirming that the scriptures were written by man, but not by God. And that's right. We bring in the theological aspects. We can say, listen, it, it could be that the when, when the author of Genesis was recording uh, the the sacrifice of Isaac or the almost sacrifice of Isaac. He doesn't think, oh, this one day is going to be Jesus. This is a picture of what's happening, you're going to happen to Christ on this mountain in 4,000 years. And that is perfectly fine that he didn't know what he was writing. But if we affirm that the author of the scriptures is God, that the scriptures are God-breathed, then we have to say there is more that can be found than just what's, what is found at the human level of scripture. And especially that, God himself is directing those events right? because he's seeing so far into the future. God is preparing us in stages, what, what, what the catechism will refer to as the divine pedagogy in paragraphs 51 to 53. Yeah. And so, so not only is he inspiring the sacred author and, and handing on to us the tradition of Abraham, huh. he also directed those events as right. author. But but this is where I, I think the important thing that Catholics and Protestants especially would benefit from is particularly when Jesus tells us in chapter four of John's gospel, God desires to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Because hmm. this is where we're transformed and take on God's likeness. In other words, hmm. God doesn't need to be worshiped. God is totally fulfilled in himself as three persons. Yeah. Now, he is drawing us into what he does, mm. and that is the adoration of God. Mm. From all eternity, the Father loves the Son with, with all he is, the infinite goodness of the Son who comes from the Father, and the Son does likewise. Huh. 
So from all eternity, God gives himself to God, and he's inviting man who's made in God's image to give himself to God to become like God. So God actually, if we want to read correctly the scriptures, the first thing God is concerned with is that we worship him in spirit and in truth. Mm. And that's why he instituted the Eucharist. Mm. Now, if you want to read the Old Testament correctly, so if you want to read the New Testament correctly, you have to see it through the eyes of worship. Mm. And if you want to read Genesis correctly, you need to see it through the same eyes of worship Mm. that are established in the Exodus. And so, you know, the main question that arises is, if we're going to look at today, Genesis 4 to 5, what's the larger framework that Genesis 4 and 5 needs to fall within for what we call a canonical exegesis of Scripture? And, and of course, the canonical exegesis means reading Scripture through Scripture in the full tradition of the apostles through their successors, the bishops, up until today. And right. what is the faith of the church? What ecclesial faith of it? And so what I tried to argue, and this article is coming out, it's it's about the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Um, it should, I think they said it would be in their spring 2020 issue. And so that might mean late summer, fall, that that'll finally come out. Right. But what we do is we ask the question really about, it goes into how important it is to read Genesis within the context of what Moses experienced. And, and what Moses experienced was Mount Sinai and the liturgy that God set up at Mount Sinai. And a lot of people miss that God is setting up a liturgy at Mount Sinai by the very, very boundaries that God establishes in chapter 19 of Exodus. Hmm. So chapter 19 of Exodus, God tells Moses to erect a border around the mountain and that absolutely no one is to cross it, man or beast. And that's going to come down on top of the mountain. And just to situate it for, for people listening, in Exodus 19, the people, the, the people of Israel have left Egypt via the Passover, via, via the, the, the ten plagues and the, the final plague of, of the killing of the firstborn. And they have left, journeyed through wilderness and they, in the Red Sea and arrived at Mount Sinai, and it's there that God speaks to them. And he gives them right. the energy. God wants to initiate them into his family. And to initiate them into his family, he wants to prepare them to enter his home, huh. which is heaven itself. And so there's a manifestation that they would have understood at a mountain. And in the ancient cosmology, we know that they would have viewed the sky itself as the heaven. So the mountain touches the sky. Right. And so in this ancient cosmology, God said, put a border around the mountain. Hmm. And I'm going to come down on top of the mountain visibly to all of you. And so this... This great cloud, storm cloud, actually, would appear so full of lightning that it would look like the entire mountaintop is on fire from all the lightning, showing this display of great power and majesty, showing God's presence. Hmm. And so what I'm trying to say is that very boundary around the bottom of the mountain, if you were to draw a bird's eye view of it, right. it would create a circle. Bird's eye view, you draw a circle on a piece of paper, and then God coming down on Mount Sinai, you would draw a, a circle in the center of that circle. Right. And what's that, what's that establishing is two different boundaries. Hmm. The big circle is the holy place, 
that you can't enter into without proper preparations. Yeah. And then the inner circle would be called the Holy of Holies, which you can't enter without explicit preparations and multiple preparations and, and washings and, and clothing and abstaining from things of the earth, letting go of the earth to enter the heavenly. And ultimately, all temples are designed on this pattern. Huh. All temples are reflection. And so in the ancient temple, you would have had the holy place, the, the opening nave going into a temple. And then the cloud would be represented by a curtain or a veil. That would represent the cloud. The curtain or veil would represent the cloud. Hmm. And I bring this up because we have to remember when we're interpreting Genesis chapters 1 to 3 that Moses is writing and, and bequeathing to us a, a certain context. So when you and I were talking, we said, how do we interpret Scripture? Right. And we have to both interpret it according to the theological understanding and according to historical critical studies hmm. that are not separated from theological faith. Hmm. And so you and I had been discussing the aspect of the dogmatic constitution of the church uh, from the Second Vatican Council. Dave, everyone number 12 was re-expressed in 50 years later in the post-synodal apostolic exhortation verbum domini by benedict the 16th yeah and so number 34 and verbum domini clarifies what day verbum meant on how to do a proper scriptural exegesis hmm. and so what i'm trying to argue is since we need to since we need to know the mind of the sacred author in his cultural context mm -hmm. and in order to better understand the scriptures that he gave us and we also need to know the divine mind because there's two authors, God right. and his instrument, the human author, whose freedom and culture he respects in giving divine revelation. And so what I'm suggesting is the best way to approach Genesis is that we can know the historical, cultural mindset of the author if we experience with him all that he experienced and what and what Moses experienced before bequeathing Genesis to us is the Mount Sinai experience. It becomes that liturgy that was established there becomes the context for his audience to understand what he wants to tell them about our beginnings. Huh. So just, just to pause you there. So, and, and this is for anyone who is listening and, and maybe not tracking along with exactly what you're saying, that if we assume that Moses is the author of the entirety of the Pentateuch, but in particular Genesis, um, yes. then when we read Genesis, we need to be thinking about what it is that Moses experienced and how those experiences are influencing his authorship of the text of Genesis. Right. And the reason I say that is we're so used to chronological order Genesis is before Exodus. Right. But in the experiential order of Moses, right. who's not in touch with his Hebrew roots until he goes to Egypt to be with his people, right. that he has to, as a prince of Egypt, who knows the Hebrews, he now has to learn them from the inside. 
Right. And he has to take their history and their stories and their narrative and their trust in God's promises to Jacob Israel. Yeah. And he has to give to them, he, he's gonna give them their origin only after his meetings with God on Mount Sinai. Yeah. It's only after all of those meetings that he's infused with prophetic knowledge in which now he can give a history he wasn't present for. He, right. You know, Moses wasn't around at that time. No, it's hundreds of years before Moses. Yeah, so yeah. we're dealing, you know, Genesis, biblically speaking, at least thousands of years before the Exodus. Right. And, and so, uh, so certainly what I'm saying would be a minority approach, mm. but I think it's becoming a more predominant approach. And, and this is where we need to understand the liturgy is the key mm. in the New Testament and in the Old Testament to interpreting both Testaments correctly. So oh. if you want to understand the New Testament correctly, you have to understand the liturgy of the wedding feast of the Lamb, the New Covenant. The book of Revelation. Yeah. So while I'm saying, actually, you need to understand the New Covenant is the body and blood of Jesus, because Jesus instituted a worship. He didn't institute a Bible. Right. And so the context for the New Testament is the institution of the body and blood of Jesus, which are the new, which is the new covenant. Huh. The writing is secondary, and the writing presupposes the institution of the body and the blood and the liturgy that the apostles would have done according to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They gathered for the teaching of the apostles, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. Yeah. So now, that holds that holds true for the Old Testament. Uh, Go ahead. Well, I, I, I'm just I'm just thinking of like if we it, it, it oftentimes that we understand like Christianity it was defined and established by the Bible. But what you're saying is no, Christianity was established by worship, by yes. a, a change of worship, and, and that was instituted in the form of a covenant. And yes. the way we make covenants is through ritual words and ritual actions. And the ritual action yes. in the New Testament is the Eucharist, and the ritual words are, this is my body. And what's so key to that is when Jesus in chapter 4 of John says to the Samaritan woman, I tell you, you'll neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but you'll worship in spirit and in truth, huh. for God seeks such. So in other words, Jesus came to give us true worship because it's through authentic and orthodox worship that we are transformed into the likeness of God because God is the mystery of the Trinity. And so what does God do from all eternity? The Father gives himself totally to the Logos, the one we know as the eternal Son of God. Huh. And Jesus says in John chapter 5, I only do as I see my Father doing. So Jesus from all eternity has given himself to the Father. So in other words, from all eternity, God gives himself to God. And since we're made in the image of God, then orthodox worship means God is helping us do what God does. And that is give ourselves to God, and therefore the image of God becomes the likeness of God within us. And we begin to participate on earth in God himself. And so we move from death to life. We move from human nature, which does not have life in itself, 
that through worship, we begin tasting God within us. So the liturgy is the key. Wow, that's profound. Reading scripture. Huh. So God had to purify the Israelites who are stuck in Egyptian worship. He had to first purify them by giving them the commandments and then telling them to ritually bathe before they could cross the first border. Hmm. Before they could be admitted into surrendering. In other words, you have to start surrendering your will. And as you surrender your will, God invites you closer. You can now come with the 70 elders partway up the mountain, but not into the cloud. Right. Only Moses can go into the cloud. And, and, but notice again, only Moses goes into that cloud, according to Exodus chapter 24, on the seventh day. day. In other words, that begins to teach us the meaning of the number seven. Communion. So, yeah, it's about covenant and communion, oath and communion, surrender of will. Huh. So in other words, we're going to read God created in six days and rested on the seventh day. Remember, God came down on the mountain to rest with us, which is like the Eucharist in the tabernacle. Huh. But Moses could not enter into that cloud until multiple invitations and preparations, right. sacrifices and washings and abstainings. Right. And it says in Genesis, it says in Exodus chapter 24, I think it's verse 16 or so. On the seventh day, Moses goes to the cloud. In other words, he's entering the Holy of Holies, which means he's entering God's rest. What a covenant does is bring us into God's rest, which is God's home, because the covenant lets us into God's home because our will has has been opened to receiving God's will into our will. And now we live off of God's will instead of human will. In a similar way to how like the covenant of marriage creates a family. It creates a family that resides together. So God creates a covenant with his people and invites them into his rest so that they can be his. And and what's fascinating is in Exodus 24, when they ratify the covenant, they, they sprinkled half of the blood on the altar and the other half of the blood on the people, which has a, a notation of punishment if you disobey the covenant, but it also has the denotation of, well, who do you share blood with? Your faith. Yeah. So what I'd argue is if you want to get into chapter four and five, what you need to look at is of Genesis of, yeah. If you want to get into Genesis four and five, let's set the context. And the context is this Israel at Mount Sinai is collectively God's firstborn son. He says that 19, doesn't he? Israel, you are my firstborn son. In Exodus. Yeah, well, yeah. and to Pharaoh, he says to Pharaoh in, in the opening of Exodus, Moses says, the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And so we know collectively they're the firstborn son. And what we're actually seeing there is a collective person is what we're seeing. Of Israel. Israel is the collective person. And what's interesting is because Luke, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he will trace us from Jesus Christ all the way back to Adam, who he will call lowercase son of God. Huh. Because Adam is, is, is that Moses writing Adam sees, right. sees Adam as a synecdoche of who Israel is. Yes. Huh. Yes. 
Wow, that's really cool. So, so while Jesus is naturally the son of God, Adam, by receiving the Holy Spirit from his beginnings, is an adopted son of God. And he, and he walks with God. He's in communion. And he walks with He's God. In the rest. But we know a covenant was made with him because of the number seven. Huh. We know we know that the, the, the seven is representative of Moses. See, when Moses is on Mount Sinai, God is revealing to him how to build a tent temple, which Moses creates in six acts and completes on the seventh act. And then God dwells in that temple. In other words, all of those experiences of Moses are coming together in Genesis chapter one to one, one and two, the world created in six days and God resting on the seventh. Then he makes man in his image and man was supposed to enter the glory cloud. He was supposed to make it to the tree of the knowledge, through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but you're not allowed to go through that glory cloud until the proper ritual washings, bathing and abstinences and invitation. You're not allowed to cross until God clothes you because it's not in your power to enter. Mm. And so what we're seeing is just as Israel was invited into covenant with God and had begun the covenant, it was never consummated with Israel because they sinned. The golden calf. Or it could be completed. Yeah. And we also see God's firstborn son in the garden of Eden trying to take divinity for himself Instead of, say it? Before he's been clothed. Before he's been clothed by God in the fullness of the sonship. Wow. So this is, this is somewhat being shown to us in St. Ephraim the Deacon's Hymns of Paradise, doctor and, and father of the church. He'll reveal this. He'll show Adam like a Levitical priest operating in the Garden of Eden. He'll just assume everybody knows that Sinai is supposed to be, he assumes Eden is supposed to be like Mount Sinai. And people understand it's a mountain, that on the very top of it is the tree of life, and surrounding it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is a border. Now notice this, you'll love this. Remember, at Exodus chapter 19, um, the Lord says, don't cross the border, don't even touch it right it, they're they're told they're told they're, i think you mentioned that they, they, they're to shoot the people who go with arrows and, and die and and the reason they shoot with arrows is because you can't hit them with the sword because then you'll have touched them right so right. you got to do a distance but notice to cross the sacred barrier comes from an ancient egyptian understanding of sanctuaries there's always curses to prevent entrance into sanctuaries if you're not prepared Huh. But now notice a lot of people will bring up in the literature and they'll say, you know, God never told Adam not to even touch it. He just told him not to eat it. Why does Eve say the okay. Lord said, don't eat it. Don't even touch it. Oh, I didn't even think of that. It's, okay, it's a now, reflection the Jewish of the rabbis will say the Jewish rabbis will say, you see, this is Adam's fault. He told Eve, don't even touch it. And he went beyond God's command. Right. That's not what's happening. Eve is pointing out to us it's a sacred barrier just like Mount Sinai. 
And it's Moses, again, taking what happened at Sinai and reflecting it onto the tree of good or the tree of life. Well, what he's doing is he's showing us because he has gone into the glory cloud on Mount Sinai and God has infused him with prophetic knowledge. He is having visions and inner knowledges that cannot be expressed in simple human language. And so what we're getting is a God-breathed reflection of our origins mm. from Moses. That's what we're mm. getting. Because he's been breathed into by God. Because notice, Moses walks out of the cloud in Exodus chapter 34, radiating God's divinity from him, shining. Yeah. And the people are afraid. So God had breathed into him because he had been in the holy place. Adam and Eve had been breathed into, and they were not naked they were not they were naked but not ashamed why because they were clothed in god when they looked upon each other they first saw god's life in each other and how they were reflections of divine persons and so they're naked but not ashamed but actually they're clothed in divinity just as adam had been excuse me just as moses had been and just as that clothing faded from not being in the presence of god so that divinity, when they lose God in their soul, now they're naked and ashamed. There's a lot happening. But let, let's get to the chase on chapter 4 and 5. Okay, yeah. I mean, you, I'm hooked, man. This is, this is so great. <laughs> Once they sin, meaning yeah. when Israel sins at Mount Sinai, they're kicked out from the original plan. Right. Moses sets up the tent meeting, and Moses can go into it, which you see... It's, it's in a reverse order. Chapter 33, you see the tent up. And huh. Moses going in to the tent in Exodus chapter 33. He's already going, it's already assumed it's constructed. But none of Israel can enter it. And whenever Moses comes out of the tent, he's radiating that divinity that you see in Exodus chapter 34. That takes a lot of explanation. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I have on my Catholic 460... I have okay. a website, catholic460.com. Yes. And I have a free manuscript there that talks about that. Okay. So if people want to see what's going on, free manuscript, it's something like uh, Transfiguration, St. Athanasian, the New Evangelization, totally free. Click it. It's a PDF. It's free. Okay. I will make sure we promote on that. that a ton. Yeah. And, and okay, at the so, end of this, I want you to, to explain Catholic 460 because I'm only tangentially uh, uh, knowledgeable of it. So at the, at, at the end of this, explain the cool stuff you're doing with that. And okay. yeah, definitely. Okay. So, so um, when they sin, God has to amend the covenant with the Levitical covenant of the priesthood. Right. Right. Before that time, it's the priesthood of the firstborn and the head of the household. Exactly. That's stripped and only the Levites have it. Right. So you'll notice Adam is clothed in garments of skins. Huh. After his sin, it says God clothed him in garments of skins. His priesthood has changed. His humanity has been degraded. Yeah. He no longer has entrance to the Holy of Holies. That's the situation of Israel after... The golden calf. This golden calf. They are stripped of the priesthood. Right. 
And they're reminded oh. of that all throughout the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers, where there, Israel or God will call the firstborn sons and essentially rebuke them all and affirm the Levites as priests. Oh, yeah. So this is important still because what we're going to watch is after Mount Sinai, we're going to see there's a line of successors of Moses with Joshua, the first of the prophets promised from Deuteronomy 18, a prophet like unto myself, Deuteronomy 18, 18, the Lord shall raise up. Mm -hmm. There's a line of prophets all the way to Samuel, who then anoints the first king, Saul. But the promise of kingship does not remain with Saul. It goes, it ends with David. David becomes the king, who then God picks up with what you like to talk about. You told me about the three promises to Abraham. Yes. Yeah. And, and with 2 Samuel chapter 8, where where all these, this extravagant promise is given to David about how his, his kingship will never end and right. his reign will, it will, will extend forever. And then, and then you read in the book of Kings and guess what? The Davidic kings lose. They go into exile. And so yes. the question is, well, wait a second. It wasn't that a lie. And it's no, it's that it's picked up in Jesus, who is the king forever. All right. So what I'm going to tell you is you just described chapter four and five of Genesis. Okay, I have no idea how, and I'm really excited okay. to learn. Because <laughs> so, I'm like, wait, Cain and Abel and some obscure genealogies? What? <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. Now, you see, we're so used to projecting a 20th, well, I would say a 19th century Enlightenment perspective right. of trying to explain away things we don't understand because they make us uncomfortable. Chapter 5 of Genesis has the, this line of Seth. It, it begins at the end of chapter 4, picks up in chapter 5, and has these outrageous ages, right? They live to Five. 900, and Adam lives 930 years. Yeah. The and next, Methuselah you know, is 969. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is that Methuselah is 969? I'm pretty sure it's Methuselah. Uh, yeah. Methuselah lived uh, after the birth. Yeah, 969. Yeah. Now, people want to say things like they come up with all these wild theories and they say stuff like, well, that, that really doesn't mean years old. Right. That means like moons because they would measure things by the moon. And that's not true. You have to go, what did the sacred author intend according to his culture? In other words, why was Genesis written? And Genesis was written to remind us of the promises and covenants, and it wants to get us from the prehistory of Israel into God's promises are still going to be fulfilled through the line of David. So Genesis may well have, I believe, Moses, as we call the substantial author of Genesis, yeah. meaning substantially the story of adam and eve is from moses reflecting the liturgy of moses that was instituted with the levites at mount sinai yeah so minimally he's the author in that way right. i believe also he's the author by giving us that narrative right but moses also had successors of the judges yes had the spirit of god yes yeah Joshua had every right to take all the collections of Moses' writings and bring them together for all the Levites to pass on. And the Levites had the right to continue 
to give side notes, footnotes, bar notes, explanations within the text. Yes. Because they too are the successors sitting on the chair of Moses, just like Jesus said. Is it Matthew 23 or 24 where he says, the scribes and Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses. So do and observe whatever. I'm honestly not sure. <laughs> so it's but, in there that Jesus confirms there's a succession. Right. Now, and has it modern scholarship hasn't modern scholarship essentially affirmed that what we can see from the manuscript tr tradition of the Old Testament is that these books were edited pretty much up until the time of the exile? Yeah, so St. Jerome will even hold, and I like Bergman Petrie's book discusses this, their introduction to the uh, scriptures, the yeah. Old Testament. Uh, do you have that? Yes, that's, that's excellent. So they discussed a little bit inside that about uh, St. Jerome held that Ezra – uh, was the final yes. editor and redactor. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So what I'm going to argue is this. You'll notice in chapter four, the sons of Cain. Yes. And I've actually written a little bit about this. I have an article I'll have to send you about this one. It's on Catholic Exchange like 20 years ago or 15 okay. years ago. Um, so there's a lot, there's a story within the sons of Cain. It's trying to teach us a lot. Lamech, right? Yeah. What? Lamech, is this where you're going? Yes. Yeah. So Lamech, Lamech has two wives, and those wives represent the sins of Israel. Huh. They, they, they represent uh, polygamy and adultery. Huh. They represent um, the kinds of idol worship and murder that go hand in hand. That's another story. Well, but what I want to say is this. Keep going, keep going. You'll notice chapter four, there's no ages given for yes. the sons of Cain, how old they were. But there are ages given for the sons of Seth. And what they're trying to do is help you follow the ages all the way to Melchizedek. Because they want to watch you transfer the, the, the post-flood world of Noah, because Noah was in the prehistoric world. Right. And enters into enters into our world through his sons, uh, Shem, Japheth, and Ham. Yes, I'm sorry. Noah, so we get the priesthood of the firstborn goes from Adam to Seth to all the firstborn to Noah. Yep. Noah brings that priesthood that still belongs to the firstborn to the post-flood world and gives it to Shem. Yes. Now those ages of all those people, if you follow the ages, Shem is only about, at the most, 500 years old. You think he's Melchizedek? Abraham's time. You, you say that Melchizedek is Shem. Well, it's not just me who says it. The rabbis say it. Huh. And the father and doctor of the church, St. Lawrence Brindisi, says it, who was fluent in Hebrew and knew all the rabbis of his time. And they confirmed that Shem is Melchizedek. In other words, just like John Paul II's name was Carl Wojtyla, his throne name became John Paul II. Yeah, and, 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 and Melchizedek is the king of righteousness, and he's the king of Salem, Shalom. That's right. Yes. Which is, which is the city of Jebus, which is that stronghold that they all knew needed to be taken because that was the mountain of the great king, Melchizedek. So that's where 
the sacrifice of Isaac was supposed to take place, but God put on hold for the true Isaac, Jesus Christ. So in other words, that you, if you watch now carefully and you read, remember, since the promises to David, you're watching for the Messiah. Right. You know, you're supposed to watch for the Messiah because of after David, under Solomon, under, under his son, the kingdom breaks up in the north and the south. Right. Well, if you look at the book of Kings, the kings of the north, they don't get the queen mother listed with them. No, no. Yeah. And I'm pretty confident. Um, I'd have to go back and double check, but I'm pretty confident the difference is also um, how many years they reigned is not always given. I'd have so to we'd go. have to double check me on that. But my point is you only get with the kings of Judah, every king has his mother listed with him and the eight and the time of his reign. So, so in other words, they're trying to say the only line that matters by giving all of that information is the line of the sons of Judah. And the only line that matters in chapters four and five is the line of Seth because it's trying to bring us to Abraham so that you can see the priesthood of Melchizedek is being given to Abraham. That's the point of Genesis four and five. Now there's a lot more too. And it's, it, <laughs> But that's this, in the article I can shoot awesome. over to you. I'll give you a link on that one. I mean, this this is so cool. I I, I love the intercanonical workings of all of this. Well, I want to give you something really, really cool. Yeah. The inner story of chapter five of X of Genesis. Yeah. Adam and Methuselah. The way holding the story together and keeping it from getting messed up is a mnemonic device. M N E. M-O-N-I-C, mnemonic device, memory yeah. device. Yeah. Okay. The numbers are probably by an editor ensuring all the copies are holding the story together properly. So if it didn't follow the mnemonic device, that you would know that so, the copy was wrong? So you'd know how many people there's supposed to be in the numberings, that the Lamech of Cain's line matches up to the Lamech of Noah's line. Notice there's two Lamechs, a righteous and one and an Enoch's unrighteous well, one. Correct. There's two the spelling's very Yeah, the similar spelling. Huh. They're juxtaposing an unrighteous line with 777. That's the meaning of that number. Because Lamech lived to 777 years. Huh. So it's pointing that the covenant goes with that line, not the line of Cain. And Lamech in the Cain lineage shows up as the sixth, the sixth person in line. Incomplete. I'll have to go through. I'd have to match up the numbers, but it's showing the fullness of sin accumulating and multiplying in, in their numerology. And, and then it's, it's the Cainites, or, the, or I guess, um, no, I, I, I'm, I'm getting this a little bit wrong. But, but then there's also... Um, the idea well, there are Canaanite. There are Canaanites. Canaanites are, are descendants take of Ham. Two wives. In other words, that's why the blessing went to Israel, not Esau, because Esau took two wives. Two women. Yeah. And thus, you see that reflection of two wives with Lamech in the prehistory. Yes, and then and then with uh, so Canaan 
is a son of Ham, which is which we're, we'll get with this yes, Ham. Yes, that's it. And and Ham would be the Canaanites, right? Um, so it, I think sometimes people confuse Cain with yes. Canaanites, and it's that's yes. not, that's not no, correct. No. But when, when it comes to Seth of yes. uh, his word or his name being the Hebrew word for name, yes, um, of signifying. Uh, blessing, but you would attach to that also this this pre idea of priesthood. Well, priesthood because they called on God by name. Hmm. In other words, they had an intimate knowledge of worshiping in spirit and in truth that was continued to be transmitted for righteousness, which leads us to Noah. Now, what's interesting is this. Methuselah lives to 969 years old. And the flood doesn't come until Noah is 600 years old. And when you do the math and it talks about the sons of Methuselah and how old he was when he had his sons and how old that son was when he had that son and you calculate it all, just like Seth means name, Methuselah means after him judgment. When Methuselah turns 969, Noah turns 600. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. So, and that's where at the beginning of, at the beginning of chapter six, when the, the Nephilim come, which I, like, I, I'm sure you have stuff on the Nephilim, but the way I've understood it is not to be the angelic, the angelic, uh, he, interangelic human intercourse but to be a mixing of the lineages of Cain and and Seth that you have how many three generations after Methuselah where that mixing is happening before the judgment comes well here's here's where my article tries to go into this that I'm going to send you a link to it's a it's a rather older one I'm trying to remember what it was called I can't remember the name of it it was like <laughs> yeah false religion and polygamy or something. I forget, but I'll, I'm going to shoot you that. Um, yeah. That is exactly the meaning. A lot of times you'll find in biblical commentaries when it comes to Lamech of the line of Cain, it says he had two wives, um, Ada and Zillah. Zillah, yeah. And so um, of Ada is born basically the the keepers of, of herd animals like goats and those who play the pipe. Those who play basically the pipe. Yes. And then um, the son of Zillah makes, makes uh, weapons of bronze. And iron. Yeah, bronze and iron. Okay, so what it represents here is the flood comes in, in chapter 6 we learn God floods the earth because the sons of God saw how beautiful the daughters of men were and took to them as they pleased, which means, in other words, a lot of times we, we, there's a weird thing that people miss, and that is usually only hear about the sons. But when it comes to Lamech of Cain's line, we hear about the That's sons the of Adah. Oh, I'm sorry. Keep going. Uh, you hear about We hear about the sons of Adah. And, the and then there's a, two sons. And then there's a son of Zillah which represents what does, because this is adultery, what does adultery lead to? Murder. So what does the second wife's son do? He specializes in weapons of murder. And then it says, and he had his, his um, 
sister. Sister. Yeah. Do you have her name in front of you? Tubal Cain. Well, well, do you have the sister's name? Tubal Cain. Oh, no, no, no. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naama. Naama. And so Naama means graceful, lovely, beautiful. <laughs> so that is the daughters of men. So, in other words, the sons of God are giving up their religion in order, for in order to take the babes of adultery. In other words, this is a reflection of the sin of Numbers 25. They're yeah. showing us the sin on the plains of Moab. Yeah, worship of Baal of Peor. Yes. Yeah. This is Numbers 25, this Baal of Peor. And, and um, this is, in other words, they're taking on, see that there's in Leviticus a mention of leaving the camp to sacrifice animals. I think it might be Leviticus. Oh, I'm blanking. I'm sorry. No. Maybe it's Leviticus 6. And he says, you have to sacrifice all animals inside the camp and stop going outside the camp because outside the camp, they're sacrificing to satyrs. In other words, demonic beings. In other words, they're trying to have illicit sex parties, sex and drug parties is what they're having outside the camp. So notice you've got the sons of Ada are the, the cattle keepers of the goat and you have the ones who play the pipes. Well, what does a satyr play? Well, look at Narnia, the five, the five pipes strung together is the satyr. Yeah. So you have represented, if you come worship false gods and sacrifice, you can take all these babes in adultery. That's what chapter four is about. And that's why chapter five shows the sons of God, those who call on God by name. Chapter six shows the sons of God starting acting like the sons of Cain. So God sent the flood. Huh. Two questions. So the first yeah. one, how, how it seems like the entire history of Israel in the Pentateuch is played out at a microcosm in this beginning of the book. Oh, yeah. How far does that track through Genesis? Does this go to through Abraham? Does it go through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph? Does does Genesis go through Isaac and Jacob? And no, then? like does does this idea of oh here's here's Genesis chapter four and five reflects this portion from later on in the Pentateuch. Gen, Genesis chapter. I would say beyond any doubt, Genesis two and three are definitely also contained within them the story of Abram and Sarai, their name changes, their encounters in Egypt, uh, and in various imagery is definitely contained. And this is some of the, this is in the article that is in the Communio article that should be coming out where I, I, I will demonstrate the connection between all of all the way through Genesis 22 through Isaac minimally is contained in Genesis chapter three. Huh. The yeah. story of Abraham is contained in Genesis three. Yes. Yes, for sure. <laughs> I, and it's, it's I impossible that it. it's, I believe you. It's but impossible that it's not. <laughs> Because, you know, God's promises and covenant are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. 
So if Mount Sinai is also pointing to the future of the transfiguration, right? Because Mount Sinai with Moses and the light coming out of Moses. Moses shows up at the transfiguration. He's there. And Moses even shows up at the transfiguration. Yeah. <laughs> well, if, we, if it foreshadows what to come, it also tells us about our past. God works the same with us yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So if it's about today, it's also about yesterday. And if it's about today, it also tells us about the future. But Christ is the one who unlocks it all. He's the key of David. So he unlocks us to be able to see all of how the New Testament is already contained in the Old Testament. So the letter of the Old is the veil, the spirit of the New Testament. The letter serves as a veil to the New Testament, and once Christ unlocks the letter of the old, you can see the whole New Testament is already contained inside the old. That's why you can, you must never ever separate a theological exegesis of a canonical reading with the liturgical understanding as worshiping in spirit and truth with the analogy of faith. You can never separate that from the historical critical methods. Or you've already taken the author outside of his original context. Huh. I, I just honestly, this is this is why I studied the Bible to begin with, is because I had moments of wonder like this, where it was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. It's it's amazing. But, but this tells <laughs> us actually the Garden of Eden was about Holy Communion. That's what the Tree of Life was about, was Holy Communion. And how you have to be baptized to receive Holy Communion. You have to be clothed in God to receive God. Baptism clothes us in God to make us capable of receiving God. So actually, actually, it's all about preparation to be admitted to Holy Communion because the Old Testament high priest could only enter the Holy of Holy once a year but the original plan of exodus 19 was for everyone to be able to enter the holy of holies right the, the royal priesthood yes. i will make you a kingdom of priests that was put on hold until the messiah who reopens the holy of holies to all who are baptized not it's no longer based on race it's based on spiritual birth jesus christ so no matter your race all races are united in jesus and we're all family of God because through baptism, anyone can enter the Holy of Holies so long as they're being faithful to the covenant and baptized. And that's a fulfillment of the third promise of the Abrahamic covenant. That's it. So Genesis 1 through 3 is a preview of the entire liturgy of the Catholic Church. Which is that's why Revelation... Well, how does Genesis begin? Uh, Seven days, which means God is swearing an oath to creation and saying, I give myself to the only part of creation, my image and likeness that can receive my word. Yes. And then, so that's a marriage, the wedding feast. And then we're invited Revelation 21. into the garden and God's preparing us to Holy Communion, but we sinned. And Revelation ends with wedding feast is back on, come on in. That's amazing. I've never seen that. I've been, I've been studying the Bible for I don't know, 10 years now, which I realize 
is is not is not incredibly long, but it's long enough to figure out a couple of things. And I didn't get this. This is so cool. Yeah, but, but every time we read it, every time we read it, like I've had the opportunity now to be teaching more Old Testament. Yeah. And every time I teach it, I always, you know, you should always pray to the Holy Spirit. You know, at St. Thomas Aquinas says, pray for the gift of prophecy, which means that the Lord use you as his instrument to teach, to teach the full tradition. That where you're weak, the Holy Spirit makes up for your failings. And I can't tell you how many times when I devoutly pray, I pray the prayer, uh, come Holy Spirit, come by means of the powerful intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, your well-beloved spouse, where we really seek the Holy Spirit to lead us. I can't tell you how much new things ever, how much I thought I understood that I learned more just by teaching. And I praise God for letting me, you know, for strengthening me, letting me edify others and edifying me in the process. So I couldn't be more grateful that, that our Lord uses us for these things. And, and we're just sinners. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's amazing. So, uh, like, what, how did you come to, to discover this? Was it, was it, I mean, are you, are you fluent in Hebrew? Is that? No, 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 no. My Hebrew is certainly not. I do do a little bit of Latin and Greek studies. I think, you know, I think a lot of us here in America owe a great debt to Scott Hahn. Okay. Uh, In the very early 90s, in the very early 90s, I started listening to him because a priest who was dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus got me to go to confession. And and Jesus says in his promises of the Sacred Heart, he'll reach hardened hearts. I certainly didn't realize how hard in my heart was. I certainly was a a nominal Catholic. Hmm. I was grateful this priest who had such a strong devotion to the Sacred Heart came into my life. And he started feeding me books and tapes. He enrolled me in the Brown Scapular. And and sadly, my first comment to him was, I don't need that superstitious stuff. I feel so stupid. You know, I, I look at how arrogant I was then. I'm sure I'm arrogant still today, hopefully not as arrogant as I was then. <laughs> yeah. um, that was, you know, 1991. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's our role. But when we're so moved, when we're so thankful that God has loved us and someone shares God with us and it changes our lives, it impels us to want to share it with others. That's how I got into this. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's been certainly lots of struggles and, you know, you, you, you bring with you the old bad habits, you know, I was 19 years old and, and certainly hadn't been educated and living as a Christian. And so, you know, part of that is, is, is patience and perseverance. The Holy Spirit gives to us through the sacraments yeah. and the patience of priests who help us along the way and how much we need lay teachers to be involved in fellowship. If it weren't for that, I certainly would have fallen away. Mm. Um, mm. So I'm grateful to every teacher I've ever had. I'm grateful for the things they put in my hands. Yeah. You know, we are instruments of, of, of graces. God uses us for actual graces. Yeah. And so it's not sacramental graces, but he uses his, his baptized and confirmed. Yeah. Those who want to be used by, he uses us to continue to edify our, our brothers and sisters to reach out to others. And, you know, if we're going to love God, then we have to seek and love what God loves and God loves all souls. So we need to be filled with the love for all souls. Wow. That is, that is incredibly inspiring. I mean, that's, I, I, I found that like, 
as as a, a lay minister and and I, I like I, as i'm hearing these things i'm thinking like oh like how can i get this into my students hands and and even more and i'm sure there are places where these ideas can be put put into them but i i get ninth, ninth graders right they're 13 14 and 15 who come and they've never picked up a bible before in their lives they've never they they, they i mean they may have gone through confirmation class half-heartedly. Hopefully not. Maybe I'm being too cynical. But but that's the typical student. And and so sometimes just saying like we're going to read the scriptures together and pray that the Holy Spirit enlightens them or enlightens us to what God has to say here um, opens up the gate to exploration into some of these really deep things where you're making connections all over the scriptures. I mean, we, we, today we've gone from Genesis to Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, Revelation, Matthew, like all, all over the, it's wonderful. It's wonder. It's just all these connections of how, how interwoven the scriptures are. And so like, I, I see it as something that is a passion for me to uh, bring young people into the word of God and then experience how beautiful and symmetric and uh, interwoven it is so that they keep exploring. And, and, and then me, I get to go to my students and say, I had a conversation with Dr. Sakonikis yesterday and I thought I knew what I needed to know about scripture. And I was completely opened up to another. And then, and I'm sure that that process just keeps happening. Um, And, and so like it's, it, it's so this is this is why I, I do I got into it doing what I do and it's it's why I fell in love with the scriptures to begin with and and how the scriptures have led me to to the heart of Christ so I mean this, this is this is really so when is this going to become a book when, when are we gonna when are we gonna, when can we buy the book <laughs> yeah you know I, I hope so I hope to uh, I, I like my writing essays um <laughs> I do get a sabbatical here in a year and I do yeah. hope to get some more writing. I'm doing a lot of writing this summer, but I'm, I'm kind of somebody who people, I, I don't write as straightforward as other people would like reading. And I got to learn to adjust myself to the reader. I'm, I'm more a person who I keep building up, building up, building up. And it's not till the end of what I'm writing that it gets all pulled together. Okay. So if you give up on me too soon, <laughs> you lose point. it. You lose it. Yeah. I feel bad. I feel <laughs> bad, but I, but I do have to learn to write better for my audience. Right. Um, I do hope to have a chat, but I am, I think there's a lot of good stuff. If, if people skip, um, you know, there is that free manuscript that I put it out a decade ago. I put it out now and then. Yeah. Um, and I do know, I think the chapter on like, you just, if people even want to just skip to Mount Tabor, it's like chapter two of it. Yeah. They can skip some of it might be too theological and the chapter one explaining Athanasius and deification. But if they read on Mount Tabor, they read on Mount Sinai, they read the chapter on the meaning of the Eucharist, that's written for certainly a much more popular audience that 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 will get a lot of the scriptural side. Um and so I think that's really helpful. In other words, sometimes when things are free, people think uh it can't be worth that much, but this is a manuscript that was a little bit before its time. People weren't as familiar with deification when I originally writ- had written it and required a lot of popularization between it. But, but now most people today are much more open. This is why I focus on 
what's the meaning of paragraph 460 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church? Mm. And that's where that catholic460.com comes from. Uh, trying to help people see that that is the Christian anthropology that is ultimately meaning, in other words, how does God elevate us by grace? How does God do this in, it's not all at once. We're, we become shares in him at baptism, but that's got to be, that's got to be allowed to grow deeper. We have to grow into Christ in every way, it says in Ephesians 4. Yeah. And so deification is about the, it's the patristic understanding of our sanctification. Hmm. And so... How similar um, to an idea of, of I mean, and maybe this is just the difference between East and West, but uh, theosis and deification, are they, yeah, the, so are they synonymous? They are. So theosis, you know, this is where the Greek fathers, the, the Greek church fathers, which are the one holy Catholic and apostolic fathers and doctors of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, their theology isn't as well known, but has grown and being better known because of the Catechism of the Catholic Church asking us to do this. And it's producing a lot of good fruit. It's helping, particularly in the West, a lot of people who were used to it so systematic, they may have had God in too much of a box. Um, and it reopened the wonder and mystery of how much God really loves us and wants to share everything with us. Um, certainly we are the ones who limit God. <laughs> yeah. Um, but how much God just wants to give us everything and share his total self with us. Yeah. And so I, I would recommend uh, a lot of this. Some of it is simplified already that I put in some writing. Yeah. So I would like to, of course, I, I do hope I have time to put together a book that from what's fruitful in the classroom, I can share more in a book. Yeah. I think the communal article that's coming out this year will really go into depth on some of the stuff that I brought up today. Will there I, be I, I, didn't go, I didn't go into what it actually all contains. Yeah. So that, um, will there be a way for people to access the communal article other than subscribing to communal? Uh, they do sometimes put up some of what's on digitally. There's a lot on communal on their website. There's okay. a lot of free articles that are in the journal. Okay. So hopefully they'd be willing to do it with this one. Yeah. Because I actually barely touched on what's actually fully inside of it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's why I say, that, where, when's the book? When's the <laughs> so I'm excited. I'm very excited that that one will come out because I get to share more with what I feel like God has wanted me to share. You know, I would say this actually. On that website, I have an article called uh, Homiletic and Pastoral Review. I have a link to an article that's called Second Peter, the the transfiguration reveals is the key to interpreting the second coming. Huh. And that only came out in August of last year. Uh -huh. um, but I think particularly what was on my mind and I felt like the Holy spirit was really leading me to share with people today is that article. So second, okay. it's called second Peter. The Transfiguration is the Interpretive Key of the Second Coming. It's on Homiletic Pastoral Review. But I also put a link up on the Catholic460.com. Okay. And if you just click, you know, when you open up the homepage of Catholic460.com, you click it, breathe with both lungs. It brings you to the page that has what I thought were important videos that I did for my undergrad students 
during yeah. the distance education due to COVID. I have some videos. Okay. Uh, and, but I also put some articles and you can find that one on second Peter, the transfiguration as the interpretive key of the second coming. That one I'd really share, but I think that's more for, a, a you know, probably, probably more uh, uh, people who have been studying a bit more theology that, you know, it's a little boring. The first five paragraphs are boring. It gets really exciting after that. My <laughs> advice is you can skip my first five paragraphs, start with the next section of that article. Okay. Yeah. And it, it'll be way more interesting to you. Yeah. Um, similar to that manuscript. Yeah. You can skip the first chapter if you don't want to be assured that you're not dealing with something heretical or new agey. Yep. And just begin with, you know, Mount Tabor and the meaning of the kingdom. Well, sure. thank you so much, Dr. Saganigas. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I look forward to talking with you more in the future. And, and I mean, this has been really great. I'm really excited to, uh, to delve more to this. And I hope right. everyone listening to this. So. God bless you and your family. Well, that's it for us today on the Bible Readers Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. And huge thanks to Dr. Sakonikis for taking time to sit down with me. If you're interested in exploring more of Dr. Sakonikis' work, be sure to check out the show notes to find any of the links to articles he mentioned. And definitely go check out catholic460.com. That's catholic460.com. Next week... We will be reading and discussing Genesis 12 through 22 and the story of Abraham. I'm really excited about it. I think you guys are really going to love it. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. And please share this podcast with anyone you know who wants to learn more about the Bible. If You can find us on Facebook by searching for Bible Readers Podcast. And if you like the show, you can ask me questions and engage in some great discussion in the comment boards. Make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss any of these great lessons and discussions. Thanks again for joining me. I'll see you next time on the Bible Readers Podcast.